You are listening to the podcast from Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. Episode 1 Between Faith and Reason. Attacks against religion, of course, are nothing new. Yet recently, the assault on religion has taken on a particular strength. From God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything by Christopher Hitchens, to The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, to Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris, books attacking religion and praising atheism pour into the bookstores and appear to go out again at a brisk pace. Nor does it stop at books. Bill Mayer's movie, Religulous, is a scathing and sarcastic cinematic attack on religion, a sacrilegious comedy as described in the film's advertisements. These attacks, whether in books or movies or in the popular press, of course share a basic assumption. Religion, according to this understanding, stands on the opposite end of the spectrum from reason. Put a little differently, Faith and reason are opposites. This assumption that religion by its very nature is irrational has a long and distinguished history dating from the period of the Enlightenment in the 18th century to the assault by the philosophes on the ruling religious establishment. Today, this assumption is so much part of our basic conceptual framework that it is hardly questioned. Religious people might strenuously disagree with the likes of Hitchens or Harris, but almost all in fact share the same underlying assumption. Fundamentalists, to cite a somewhat extreme example, might insist on the need to teach creationism alongside with evolution, but they too see the inherent tension between the two approaches. Even scholars are not immune from understanding religion as opposed to reason. In his magisterial book, how to Read the Bible, A Guide to Scripture Then and Now. James Kogel discusses modern biblical interpretations side by side with ancient religiously informed ones. At the end, though, he comes to the remarkable conclusion that in fact the two forms of interpretation are irreconcilable. It is not just religion and the hard sciences that are opposed, but religion and reason. Biblical scholarship might offer certain truths, but these truths cannot be reconciled with those delivered by faith. You have to choose. You can believe in biblical criticism or in the teachings of tradition. You can't have both. But are faith and reason really opposites? Prior to the Enlightenment, no one thought so. For most pre-moderns, the knowledge provided by reason, experience, and observation was precisely the same as the knowledge provided by revelation. There was but a single truth. Reason and revelation led to the same place. Now, this is not without its own logical difficulties. Medieval philosophers then had to ask what the purpose of revelation was to begin with. If reason, the power of the human mind, leads to the same place as revealed truth, why did God bother with a revelation? 
One Jewish theologian, Sa'aja Gaon, who was the head of the Jewish Academy in Babylonia in the 9th-10th centuries, asserted, for example, that Revelation served two purposes. First, Revelation was a shortcut. Whereas human inquiry is a slow and plodding activity, God gave the gift of Revelation so that we might understand where we are going. Second, and related to the first goal, Revelation helps us to stay on track in our quest for truth through reason. Revelation serves as a guide to reason, but it is not just a one-way street. Sa'aja and many medieval thinkers and theologians thought that Revelation, in this case the truth in Scripture, could never contradict reason. If our own reason led us to a conclusion that contradicted the meaning of Scripture as we understood it, then it is often our understanding of Scripture that needs adjustment. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the right or even a good answer for us. It is hard today in our multicultural world even to define which revelation we are talking about, let alone to accept it as an authoritative truth. I want to make a simpler point. There are many ways to think about the relationship between faith and reason that ultimately can be much more useful to us than the battling dichotomy entrenched in our culture. I make this point primarily in order to provide some context for understanding this podcast on ancient Jewish history. The approach that I take throughout this series is an academic rather than a parochial one. Over the years, having taught this topic countless times to students in a variety of settings, I have learned that this subtle difference of approaches and expectations frequently creates confusion. In the remainder of this episode, I want to clarify the difference as I understand it, and also to suggest that by understanding the relationship between faith and reason somewhat differently, the academic approach to religion can enrich all of our lives, whether we are religious or secular. In a sense, this is my attempt to articulate, however briefly and incompletely, where I am coming from and what I am up to in this series. I am a professional student of religion, having taught and written primarily about the Jews in antiquity in university classrooms and more parochial settings. I am also a relatively traditional Jew. I am thus confronted with two challenges. First, professionally, how do I articulate and communicate to students the assumptions that underlie an academic approach to religion? Why is the history that I am going to teach different than the one they may already know? Second, personally, how do I put together these approaches for myself? Are they indeed, as Kugel claims, irreconcilable? First, the professional issue. What is the academic study of religion? In general, the answer is that scholars approach religion as any other kind of human activity. Now, there are debates among academics about what constitutes religious activities or even religion itself no less the proper ways in which it should be analyzed. But without minimizing those debates, it is pretty safe to say that most academics adopt two assumptions when studying and teaching religion. The first is to bracket supernatural claims. This does not mean objectively denying God or God's role in human history. It does mean that by the rules of the game, as it were, such claims are irrelevant. The Bible, for example, is not approached as divine revelation, but as a creation of human authors. That's a working assumption, not a truth claim. 
The second assumption necessary for the academic study of religion is to suspend most kinds of value judgments. The point of such study is not to declare one religion better than another, nor is it to laud your favorite religion and castigate the others. Critical judgments are, of course, a necessary part of such study. But parochialism, in however subtle a form, impedes rather than contributes to our understanding in the classroom. This is not an intuitive approach to religion. It is an approach that puzzles many, whether they are religious or diehard atheists. The source of this puzzlement is not hard to discern. We are so used to seeing religion and reason as opposites that it is sometimes difficult to see how they can coexist. It can seem somehow odd or even perverse to apply critical investigation to the claims of religion. Subjecting the claims of religion to the same complex analyses that we apply to the rest of our lives often confuses or even offends some of my more religious students. On the other hand, many non-religious students, and even my academic colleagues in other disciplines, sometimes confuse the study of religion with its practice. For them, the study of religion seems a subversive attempt to sneak religious and theological claims into the academy. This confusion is perhaps best exemplified in the responses that people often have when you tell them that you study or major in religion. Tell somebody that you are majoring in religion, and he or she will inevitably ask you if you want to enter the clergy. Yet, if you tell that same person that you are majoring in history, you will most likely not be asked if you are planning a career as a professional historian. Majoring in religion often makes parents anxious in a way that other majors in the humanities that are seen as more conventional do not. To these undergraduates and their nervous parents, we often give three conventional, largely utilitarian reasons why a focus on religion does not necessarily lead either to a clerical career or to certain financial ruin. While not directly related to the goal of this podcast, they are worth briefly mentioning, both because they are good and because they provide some insight into how scholars of religion perceive how we fit within the academy. First, just like the study of history or English or practically anything else, the study of religion enhances one's critical thinking skills. What then can one do with a major in religion? Well, anything. Just like any other major in the liberal arts, a major in religion sharpens one's ability to read, write, analyze, and make and critique arguments the skills necessary for later successful careers in law, business, medicine, or anything else. It is not vocational training. Second, for better or sometimes worse, religion plays a powerful force in the world. To be an engaged citizen in our own political system, religion, like economics, political science, some basic grasp of the sciences and international relations, among many other domains of knowledge. This is simply something you should know about. Making an informed decision on critical issues of the day, such as abortion rights and the environment, are enhanced by the ability to hear and understand all sides, including those whose rationales might be more theologically rooted than yours, or less so, for that matter. Mucking around in another country's religious conflicts also tends to go much better if we have some basic idea about what we are doing. Third, knowledge of religion helps one's ability to relate to others, whether personally or in business. You might avoid offending a religious Jewish client 
with a phone call on her Sabbath or offering a beer to your Muslim boss. At the same time, you will better understand the bases of such practices so they don't appear completely arbitrary and irrational. Now, while all of these are good reasons for undergraduates to study religion, they also beg a more basic and critical question. If the goal of studying religion academically is not to make value judgments, why bother? Studying religion academically is not geared to enhance one's actual religious or spiritual life, nor, though, is the goal to disprove or to denigrate religion and its truth claims. So what is the point? I want to suggest that the conflict between religion and its academic study, reason that is, it's not as stark and dichotomous as it is often seen. I am not a philosopher, and my solution to this problem will no doubt appear thin and lacking for those with more philosophical sophistication. But then, if my musings annoy you enough to sharpen and develop your own approach, well, then that, to my mind, would have been a very good outcome indeed. Let me begin a little personally. My life is complex, as I imagine yours is too. Whether at my job, in my house, or in the voting booth, I am called upon every day to make a numbingly large number of complex judgments and decisions. I am constantly weighing pros and cons, deciding which trade-offs are worth making and which are not, how to balance my time between work and family, or simply how to balance my checkbook. Life is messy, and it involves the knowledge that for many of these choices, there are no right or wrong answers, only those that might work, whatever that means, better or worse. On the one hand, I admit this can get tiresome and stressful. There are moments when I want to abdicate these responsibilities, declare my wife the chief operating officer of my household, and turn on the television. On the other hand, though, it is precisely this messiness that not only keeps us free, but also keeps things alive. To engage life is not a simple matter, but it is also clear that only by embracing this complexity can we reach toward fulfilling our true potentials, both as individuals and as members of larger communities. That is why I find the assumption that faith and reason are incompatible to be so disturbing. We are rational human beings who are asked most moments of every day to use our rational abilities. Is there not something inherently offensive or at least condescending to be asked to turn off these rational faculties in religious contexts? This may just be a personal preference, but I prefer my religion as messy and complex as the rest of my life. What I'm getting at, I suppose, is that the academic study of religion is not fundamentally inimical to the, its practice. It also is not a way to sanitize theology and bring it into the university or the public square. And finally, it should not be simply a dry, abstruse topic of interest only to pedants. Rather, I believe that the critical study of religion, like the critical study of history or literature, is personally enriching. Ultimately, to study religion is to study how human beings throughout space and time have wrestled with fundamentally human problems. What the study of religion offers us is a wide lens through which to consider these fundamental issues and how others have understood, framed, and tried to respond to them. Do our lives have a purpose? How are we to live in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people and vice versa? How do we make sense of a senseless and destructive tsunami or a child who dies? 
How do we respond to the awe of birth, of death, of the cosmos? Science, of course, also attempts to answer many of these questions, as do many other disciplines. We can try to get at the meaning of life through psychology or philosophy, for example. The answers that these disciplines provide are not wrong, but nor do I think that they tell the whole story. I cannot help thinking that to throw out thousands of years of accumulated human wisdom on issues that are no less pressing now than they were then impoverishes us. Maybe I am alone in thinking this way, but even if I cannot accept many of the answers that our progenitors came up with or the premises on which they are based, I welcome them. I can use all the help that I can get. To study religion critically is to develop intellectual resources to address profoundly human concerns. To learn the Talmud's or Augustine's solution to the problem of why we as human beings often do evil does not mean that we have to accept them. But it does give us just a little bit more with which to work, another resource in our intellectual toolkit as we make our way through life. This, whether religious or secular, we could all use. So does studying religion critically lead to a loss of faith? I guess that if by faith we mean dogmatic, simple propositions that are not only unverifiable but contradict the knowledge that we derive through our rational investigations, then I suppose that this might be true. The simple proposition that God gave the Torah or the Pentateuch does seem to be irreconcilable with the knowledge that humans redacted the Torah from four or five earlier sources. This, though, I would submit, is a very narrow understanding of faith. To have faith, though, might also mean to look around at the world and the amazing and colorful diversity of human experience, and to stand humbly with and before such knowledge. It might mean to recognize that dogmatic propositions distort rather than reflect truth. It might mean developing a far more nuanced and sophisticated response to the world, as we confront that which we know, that with which we struggle, and the vast amount that we do not and never will know, with integrity and humility. For our own sakes, we cannot afford not to study religion critically. Answers to human issues that we label as religious still primarily remain answers to human issues, and we can learn from them. Hitchens and Dawkins and Mayer are certainly correct that religion can be a force for bad. To identify such practices of religion with religion writ large, though, is silly. So too it is silly, or maybe better, simply not useful, to contrast religion with science, faith with reason. The idea for this podcast emerged out of frustration. I am frustrated with the dumbing down of religion, particularly the way in which rich and complex histories are reduced and twisted to produce simple moralistic narratives of the sort we would never believe in any other arena in which we work and play. The histories I read and write at work bear little resemblance to the ones I hear in synagogue. This state of affairs is partly the fault of scholars. Admittedly, we often do not do a good job communicating to those outside the profession. This podcast series is my modest attempt to address that problem. This series will explore early Jewish history with an emphasis on what is today sometimes called ancient Judaism. 
In 586 BCE, the Babylonians destroyed the Israelite temple in Jerusalem and exiled its leaders to Babylonia. Only a few generations later, some of their descendants returned to rebuild their temple. The series will cover about 600 years, ending with the emergence of Christianity and then the rabbis in the first two centuries of this era. My focus, then, is on a period that is conventionally known to historians of the Jews as the Second Temple Period, although it might also accurately be seen as spanning the Persian, Hellenistic, and Roman periods. As we traverse together this basic historical narrative, I will take a few stops to consider selected topics, such as the formation of the Torah and the canonization of the Bible, the Maccabean Revolt, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, and the life of Jesus the Jew. In the next episode, I will discuss, albeit too briefly, the religion of the Israelites before 586 BCE. This will help to highlight both the lines of continuity and, more importantly, the radical transformation that will occur in the religion of Israel. Neil Ginsburg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Thank you for listening.